This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. If you are offended by potty talk, well, then you might be offended. It's Tuesday, April 5th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And Ben Sass is a Republican senator from Nebraska. I have said nice things in the past about Sass, and he has said some nice things about people I respect. Even when he says not nice things, he says them in a pretty nice way. Know that you haven't claimed um, a judicial philosophy at all, but a, a judicial philosophy of originalism here. But I do think the fact that you've at least nodded to it uh, in the committee hearing today is in and of itself a pretty great testimony to how much of Scalia and Bork's um, work has has moved the legal field. So I'm grateful for, for the time you're taking with us. I'll look forward to listening tonight and talking with you again tomorrow. Now, if you told me three weeks ago that a few Republicans would have, at this point, publicly committed to vote for Katanji Brown-Jackson, I would not have been surprised if Senator Sass were among them. But after hearing his kind words to her and his more substantive questioning to her than any other Republican on the panel, and his criticism of what he called jackassery in chasing camera time, if you had asked me, I don't know, about a week ago, then I would have been surprised if Sass was not among the Republicans supporting Judge Jackson. But Sass is, in fact, not among the Republicans supporting Judge Jackson. His problem was she would not label herself to his satisfaction. He wrote, Judge Jackson has impeccable credentials and a deep knowledge of the law. But at every turn this week, she not only refused to claim originalism as her judicial philosophy, she refused to claim any judicial philosophy at all. Although she explained originalism and textualism in some detail to the committee, Judge Jackson refused to embrace them or any other precise system of limits on the judicial role. Well, I would have to say, having heard all her testimony, that Judge Jackson went further than Justice Sotomayor would have, or Justice Breyer, or former Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. They would have actually said, eh, originalism, I don't know, or sidestepped the question. She said originalism has some merit. She just didn't say, I'm an originalist. And why should she? Even Scalia did not primarily describe himself as an originalist. He was a textualist first, he said. But really, who cares? If he said he was a constitutionalist, or if he was a star-belly sneechist, he still would have made the rulings he did for the reasons he did, undergirded by the philosophy he had. And Katanji Brown-Jackson will make hers her ruling for her reasons, which we all know. No, and I guess Ben Sass anticipates that he won't like. So let's dispense with the fictions that it's all because her rulings don't come with the proper label. Sass is groping for a more high-minded reason to justify his petty calculation. Basically, she's a liberal and he's not, and he harbors ambitions to run for the nomination of a party that loathes liberals. Maybe that's not it. Maybe I'm misreading his motivations. Lord knows I look foolish by giving him some public benefit of the doubt. But while I have no Ben Sass shrines in the home or any Ben Sass world tour concert tees, or hold on, let me check. Nope, my Ben Sass NFT is not properly registered to the blockchain. I did harbor a hope that he had 
a little more character than he's displaying, or at least a little different political calculation other than other side bad, my side good. There are many people in this audience, this very audience, who are saying, well, Mike, I could have told you that. He had you fooled, not me. Okay, wise cynic. I also thought Senators Collins and Murkowski would vote for Jackson, and they did. And if they hadn't, it would have been the usual, well, what do you expect, sucker? Why'd you ever trust a Republican snake? So my explanation is that in the case of Sass, I wouldn't say I trusted him. It's just that I thought his brand was less sidewinder and more sidestepper of usual negative partisanship shenanigans. I don't expect him not to be conservative. I just thought that he would see that it was in his self-interest to avoid knee-jerk ideological decisions. But then he puts forward his objection is that Judge Jackson is unwilling to wear the originalist team hat. It's threadbare. It's laughable. It's unbecoming. And it's kind of jackassery. On the show today, how can Vladimir Zelensky negotiate with that war criminal? It's called almost every peace talk ever. But first, he is a Yale professor who is also a corporate CEO of a pretty huge business. Maybe you have heard of Honest Tea. As such, Professor Barry Nailbuff has been studying negotiation for years. And he has a couple of insights that could change the game by redefining it. Split the pie, Nailbuff argues. By that, he means, well, you'll just have to stick around to discover Barry Nailbuff up next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Barry Nelbuff teaches at the Yale School of Management. He is an expert in game theory. He is also an entrepreneur, one you I'm sure have heard of because he is a co-founder of Honest Tea. And it was while doing the negotiations over Honest Tea with another company I'm sure you've heard of, the Coca-Cola company, he decided to split the pie. It's a, in fact, relatively new way of thinking about negotiation. His new book is called Split the Pie, a radical new way to negotiate. Barry Nelbuff joins me now. Hi, Barry. Welcome to The Gist. Thank you for bringing a radical on board. Honored to be here. I'll do it. I'll take the risk. So let's go to Pepe's Pizzeria. Is Pepe's the one known for the clams or do they both do the clams? Pepe, Sally's, Modern, all clam pizzas. That's why people come to New Haven. But yes, I heard there's also a minor league hockey team and a university there. But the deal with their pies is they're square. They cut them in 12 pieces. Is this the pie you speak of when you speak of splitting the pie? Tell us about that. It's certainly a good starting place. So the example I like to use is that Pepe's will give Alice and Bob 12 slices if they can agree on how to divide it up. But if they can't agree, Alice will get four and Bob will get two. And the question is, if they have to negotiate, how will they end up dividing the 12? Most people think that the division should be eight and four. A two to one ratio, that was the fallback. 
two to one ratio in the fallback. Alice is twice as strong as Bob, so Alice should get twice as many slices. Other people think just take the 12 and divide it six and six. And I think both answers are misguided. The reason is that they don't understand what the negotiation pie is. Mm -hmm. Absent a deal, they can get four and two slices or six in total. With a deal, they can get 12. The reason to do the negotiation is to go from six to 12 to get those extra six slices. Alice and Bob are equally needed, so you should divide it up three and three. Alice, therefore, gets the four on her own, plus three or seven. Bob gets the two plus three or five. So I get it. It makes sense. It's the sort of brilliant innovation or insight that does upend what you thought. But as soon as it upends what you thought, it instantly makes sense. You don't really have to do so much more convincing to people, right? People don't argue with you and say, no, 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 it should be it should be eight and four, do they? Uh, actually, the Alice's of the world tend to uh, argue a little bit here. They like the proportional division. Uh, and surprisingly, if you let the Bobs know about this, or maybe not so surprisingly, they're able to get a lot more in their negotiations with the Alice's. Huh. So it is one of those things that I'd say is obvious in hindsight, and therefore probably I can't get it published. But yes, uh, I like to think that once people understand the true pie, they can figure out how to negotiate. Right. And if we use some sort of veil of ignorance, if you, if people don't know if they're the Alice or the Bob and you present that scenario, I would guess that most people uh, who project themselves on either side would say, okay, that sounds fair to me. Absolutely. I, the notion of fairness shouldn't depend on which side you're sitting. Right. And so I'm totally with you on that. And people throw around the fair word, but they never define what fair means. Now, having said that, Proportional division is everywhere you look. So if we think about humanitarian aid, well, countries are supposed to give a percentage of their GDP to humanitarian aid. That means Switzerland and Turkey are giving the same 1%. Now, their GDPs are the same, but Switzerland has one-tenth the population of Turkey. So we come up with these crazy rules that sound fair, but really aren't. Right. And at a certain point, um, let's say, you know, Spotify pays everyone 0.0015 cents for a play of their records. If you're Britney Spears, that's a fair chunk of change. But if you're um, an indie, Tame Impala, let's say, you're just not seeing anything from that. There's no rule of fairness that applies in all situations. Actually, I think there is. You Go calculate ahead. what the pie is and you split it evenly. So uh, I'm prepared to say that. And uh, sometimes maybe Britney should be getting more than the proportional share, because if that's why people subscribe to Spotify or that's why people subscribe to Peach Fish Productions, that's uh, you're the person. Therefore, uh, it's not just how many downloads you get. It's why people are coming there. Here's here's the inside of split the pie. Splitting the pie in negotiations, if I, when I was telling a friend about this, he said, that's an insight. How does that count as an insight? I'm like, that's not the insight. The insight isn't the verb split. The real insight is define the pie. But as a book title, define the pie doesn't do as well as split the pie. But that's what you're really talking about. If you can figure out what the pie is, then you'll have a better negotiation. Mike, you are 100% on top of it. That's completely right. And that's that. it's a funny thing to say that when people are negotiating, they don't know what they're negotiating about. Yeah. But that's why people hate negotiation, because they end up making arguments that 
don't really make sense. And they feel they're being exploited and they don't really have the vocabulary to understand why this outcome isn't fair, but they feel that it isn't fair. So here's a real, I think here was a tangible one that people can relate to where we have a pie. Your mom's selling a condo or your mom's living in a condo in Florida and her landlord tells her he wants to put it up for sale. Take me through that example. Sure. So, and fortunately, she's interested in buying the property. Mm -hmm. Now, as a result, they can avoid a real estate agent commission, which in this case is about 5% or $40,000. Okay. The question is, who should get that 40000 One view is, well, if she buys another place, she'd have to spend 800000 to find an equally good condo. So she should just pay seven ninety nine. Another perspective is, well, if he sells to any other buyer, he's only going to get 760000 So maybe he could just get seven sixty one. And my view is, no, actually, they're equally needed in order to save this money. So therefore, they should split the 40000 20 And he can come back and say, well, that's a hot market. This is the only property for sale in this development. So I should get more of it. And my answer is, the hot market changes what the price should be that we subtract the 20000 from. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't change the fact that we should split the 40000 20 Now, we have to split, having split it 50-50, we still have to agree on the price. And the good news is there were five other sales on her street this year. And so you look at price per square foot, uh, indoor area, outdoor area, and you can come up with the market price. So what it does is it turns negotiation into a data exercise, if you'd like, rather than a confrontation. Does it take a special kind of um, negotiating partner to get the uh, logic of this? Or in your experience, does it usually dawn on people that this is the best way to do it? So people have talked about me as a kind of Spockian approach to uh, negotiation. And I think that once people hear this framework, they don't have a counter to it. And they're comfortable because they want ultimately to do something that's fair. And they also recognize the equal power of the two sides here. So I'd like to start negotiation not with talking about price, but what's the process by which we're going to negotiate? Let's create a big pie and split it. Right. Tell me about your own experience with Honest Tea and Coca-Cola and how the idea of splitting the pie developed. My partner, Seth Goldman, and I had the opportunity to sell our company to Coca-Cola, but we had a problem, which was our sales at the time were around $20 And Coca-Cola is fantastic at taking companies from $100 to a billion. They're also pretty good at taking companies from $50 down to zero. So as a result, we had to get a little bit bigger before we could fit into their ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So they agreed they'd buy our company in three years. And in the meantime, they'd help us with distribution, with production, with purchasing. That was great. The only question is, and the problem they had is, they didn't want to pay more for all the things they were doing to help us. Right? I'm going to give you a hand, and now you're going to make me pay more for it? Mm -hmm. And my response was, You don't have to pay fully more. What you should do is pay half the value that you help create because we need you to create that value, but you need us as the vehicle on which to help. And so what we agreed on is they would pay full price on sales up to X and half price on sales above X, where X was the number that we could have achieved without them. 
we actually agreed on that framework in the first hour of our negotiations. And then we went back and forth over what X was and what full price meant. But both of those were data exercises. Yeah. Not so much negotiation. Well, who is your negotiating partner? And did you have to convince him of the logic of not what X was, but of what you were doing? What arguments did you use, if any, that brought him along to, yeah, I could, I could buy into that? Uh, our negotiating partner was Derek von Rensberg, who's now dean at uh, the Business School of Pepperdine, but was uh, before that uh, at Coca-Cola. And the fact is, it helped us focus on why we're doing this deal. Rather than denigrate what the other person is bringing, it's saying, hey, we're doing this deal because we can create value together. It makes sense. This We can do more together than we can do separately. And let's talk about all that value that's created uh, and focus on why the pie is big. Because once we know we're going to split it, now we're on the same team. Our goal is to make a big pie. And so it made the negotiations a whole lot friendlier than it might otherwise have been. So what year was this, Barry? Uh, 2008. And had you thought of, uh, if not the phrase, then the concept of what you were doing before you were actually involved in the literal negotiations for millions of dollars? Uh, I was teaching the pizza example that you heard, uh, but it was in the classroom. It hadn't yet been applied to real-world cases. Uh-huh. And were you confident it would work? Uh, side question is, if it blew up, would you have to revise your curriculum? Uh, uh, revise my curriculum, find a new house, uh -huh. uh, all sorts of uh, things would have been necessary. But the truth is, I believe there's nothing so practical as a good theory. Yeah. And it was also the theory that led us to honest tea, which is, I believe, in declining margin utility. And so the first teaspoon of sugar is great, the second is okay, and each additional one adds the same amount of calories, but not that much more flavor. And so uh, I like to live my life by economic theory. <laughs> so if you were a theologian and went to heaven and it was the wrong God, I mean, you'd have to revise the curriculum. This is essentially what happened. Not everyone who teaches in the academy gets a chance to uh, visit their theories in the real world. Uh, and <laughs> fortunately, this one worked. Yeah. So writing in the New York Times... Your this this new book was discussed, and uh, Peter Coy, I think, described it as cooperative game th theory, as opposed to a different kind, which is competitive game theory. Um, would you agree with that assessment? By the way, game theory is broken into two branches: cooperative and non-cooperative game theory. And the basic idea of the pie is indeed from this branch called cooperative game theory, where essentially one is coming up with rules for how people should behave. Now, in general, do most people look at negotiations as if it belongs in the branch called competitive game theory, but your insight is that most negotiations would go better if they thought of it as co cooperative game theory? Actually, I'm an and guy, not an or guy. Okay. And so I, I think we use insights from both. I think framing things in terms of the pie is the insight from cooperative game theory. And then in terms of the moves, the counter moves, what to say, how to respond, how to frame things, a lot of that is the non-cooperative game theory. And is that mostly based on your understanding of your uh, bargaining partner's psychology? Uh, behavioral economics comes into play. But even here, I think people uh, make massive errors in terms of how they apply 
behavioral economics. So there's often thought that you should start with a high anchor, mm -hmm. that you should try and soften up the other side. Uh, well, that didn't work too well when Trump uh, meets or was scheduled to meet with Mexico's president, Enrique Pena Nieto, uh, and says, uh, you're going to pay for the whole wall. Mm -hmm. uh, and pres the Mexican president just cancels the whole meeting. Right. Uh, it's sort of, it's so unreasonable yeah. that you're not the person I even want to negotiate with. But in general, if the right price is something like $500, and I start asking you for $4,000, you suddenly you think, well, are you trying to rip me off? What's going on? And then you come down from $4,000 to $3,000 to $2,000 to $900. It's like, are you Gumby? Is there any backbone that you have? You're forced to make giant moves. You can't defend what it is that you've asked for. And so I don't trust you. And... Uh, the whole thing is just going to go off the rails. You mentioned the high anchor of you're going to pay for the wall, Mexico. Can you think of any examples where Trump um, either negotiated or, you know, engaged in the diplomatic version of negotiation where he did some smart things? <sighs> Please leave the sigh in. <laughs> it's going to be hard. It's yeah. going to be hard. Uh well, what did he do? What um, mistakes did he make that are maybe common? Okay, so let's not rake him over the coals for doing totally baffling things. He probably engaged in some negotiation that a lot of people do. I think his major issue is that he believes that in order for you to succeed, the other side must fail. Right. And therefore, fundamentally destroys pie in the process of a negotiation. And he believes that deals can be renegotiated once they've been reached, uh, that reputation isn't worth anything. And so it's not the person you would choose to negotiate with if you have an option. Let me contrast that, if you'd like, uh, a little bit with Putin. Okay. So uh, I think Putin has some legitimate issues in terms of security. That is, just as the United States would not want to have Mexico be part of the Warsaw Pact, it's not unreasonable for him not to want to have Ukraine be part of NATO. Okay? And I think that he miscalculated in terms of how hard it would be for us to agree to that proposition. You see, if my wife asked me never to eat Brussels sprouts again for the rest of my life, no problem. I'm going to sign up for that right away. I hate Brussels sprouts. <laughs> Your BATNA is not that affected. It's, I, I don't like them. So yeah. it's easy for me to give them up. And so you'd say, well, if we don't really think Ukraine should be part of NATO, it should have been easy for us to give that up. Mm -hmm. The fact that we don't give it up suddenly makes him even more suspicious that it's in our plan to make it happen. But the problem is Biden is not just negotiating with Russia. He's negotiating with the Republicans, public opinion, the other members of NATO. Mm -hmm. well, you know, and also so, by implication, China and what they might do with Taiwan. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and so the problem is that he can't give up something that actually he doesn't even want to have. And that just makes the whole situation escalate. So that's the sense of trying to really understand the other person's perspective, make their arguments, show them that you appreciate their perspective, but there may be other factors that don't allow you to give them exactly what they want the way they want it. Barry Nelbuff is a professor at the Yale School of Management, and he is the founder of Honesty and Kombucha. 
Interesting story there. Couldn't get the alcohol out of the kombucha. So let's just embrace the alcohol in the kombucha. He is also the author of Split the Pie, A Radical New Way to Negotiate. Barry, a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Let's make some big pies together. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where uh, it got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And now the spiel. Ukraine President Vladimir Zelensky has a conundrum, we are told. Beyond the world's third mightiest army rolling through his country, aiming missiles, bombs, and tank fire at civilian centers. That is a challenge, but not a choice. The Ukrainians must and have been fighting back. A conundrum is when you have aims or goals that are at cross-purposes. Whereas the in-laws and javelin missiles' aims are at Russian tanks. Zelensky has made clear that Putin is not just an enemy, not just a monster in a general state, but a war criminal in the, he argues, legal sense. He emphasized this point in speaking to the UN Security Council today. Now the world can see that the Russian, what Russian military did in Bucha while keeping the city under their occupation. But the world has yet to see what they have done in other occupied cities and regions of our country. Geography might be different or various, but cruelty is the same. Crimes are the same and accountability must be inevitable. Zelensky added, speaking about the chronicled execution-type killings of civilians in Bucha, quote, I am addressing you on behalf of the people who honor the memory of the deceased every single day and the memory of the civilians who died, who were shot and killed in the back of their head after being tortured. President Biden agrees with that. You may remember I got criticized for calling Putin a war criminal. 
Well, the truth of the matter, you saw what happened to Luca. This warrants him, he is a war criminal. And that's the atrocity. Now here's the dilemma, the conundrum, Washington Post headline. Zelensky's wrenching dilemma, how and when to negotiate with, quote, a war criminal. CBS's Margaret Brennan, adding a list of personal insults to the idea of war crimes, put the question to Zelensky on Face the Nation this Sunday. Looking and listening to what Vladimir Putin has said, he's called Ukraine not a real country. He said it's controlled by little Nazis. He's called you a drug-addled thug. Is he someone you can negotiate with? Zelensky answered of the idea of looking past Putin's atrocities, quote, that's something I'm not fine with, but there is no other way. And he added, as a president of Ukraine, there cannot be just my personal view about President Putin and a dialogue with the Russian Federation. I have to stand for the interests of my country. So it's difficult to say how, after all what has been done, we can have any kind of negotiations with Russia. This situation, knowing that it is a war criminal across from you at the negotiating table, this is not unique to Zelensky. Perhaps we in the West, or we as Washington Post editorial writers or host of TV shows who are trying to be conduits for their readers and viewers, have to ask the question, and it can't be an easy position for Zelensky to be in, but it's just how war has ended. The UN has helped negotiate peace or assigned peacekeepers to Myanmar, Afghanistan, Ethiopia, Sudan, Mali, and the Central African Republic in the last couple of years. In all of those conflicts, there are credible allegations and documentation most times of war crimes. But the negotiators have to swallow that and still come to terms to prevent the future perpetuation of war crimes. Let's take Sudan, a notable example. Omar al-Bashir was president of that country during fighting over the Darfur region. Round after round of peace talks occurred among the justice and equality movement, that's the GEM, and the Sudan liberation movement, that's the SLM, and Bashir's government, the government of national unity of the Sudan. And everyone negotiating knew that al-Bashir was a war criminal. He was the first sitting president to be indicted while in office. Arrest warrants were issued in March of 2009 and July of 2010. The charges, five counts of crimes against humanity, two counts of war crimes, including intentionally directing attacks against the civilian population as such, or against individual civilians not taking part in hostilities, pillaging, and also three counts of genocide. But al-Bashir traveled internationally to Kenya, to South Africa, to Jordan. He was an indicted war criminal. He was still a party to negotiations because that's how peace talks always work. There have been many aspects of the Ukrainian war that have been disquieting, upsetting, horrifying, but they're not unique. We often hear qualifiers like it's the largest war in Europe since World War II or the first invasion by a sovereign state into another in Europe since World War II. But as you know, there are a lot of conflicts in the world, a declining number, thankfully, but almost all of them are informed by the exact dynamic as the Ukrainian conflict, war criminal versus leader of peoples being subject to war crimes. Most of the time, charges of war crimes flow both ways, and oftentimes those charges are accurate. 
That American observers have such a hard time getting their heads around the dynamic speaks to their innocence in a way, which can be seen as a good thing, the capacity to still be shocked by the prospect of negotiating with a war criminal. Demonstrating the capacity is an indication that we've been living in peaceful times, relatively speaking. The shock also demonstrates the success, I would go as far as to say the total triumph of Zelensky's PR efforts to get the West to view him as the sympathetic embodiment of his people, which is to say, of the victims. Another reason why American observers find it so difficult to countenance and contemplate negotiating with the killer of civilians is that the last superpower to have engaged in civilian killings on this large a scale did not negotiate the end of their war. That would be the United States, which according to the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, killed between 910 and 2200 civilians in drone strikes in Afghanistan, Somalia, Pakistan, and Yemen. The group Air Wars, which uses estimates, not actual documented death, puts the number in the tens of thousands, by the way. This doesn't make the United States war criminals, by the way. Actions that lead to civilian deaths aren't de facto war crimes. It is the intentional directing of the attacks at civilians, which the United States does not do. There is uh, some debate about how much care they take not to do it. But that aside, even if you reject the notion that the U.S., committed war crimes, civilians were killed, and the U.S. did engage in talks with the Taliban, who themselves have committed war crimes and atrocities. So this odd, hard-to-get-our-head-around supposedly position that Zelensky's in, many, many have been in this position. The Taliban and Americans all saw their enemies as having perpetuated war crimes. It is the way of the world. It is the way of war. It has happened, war crimes have happened in every war since war crimes were defined, and all the wars that existed before the definition was put in place. It's a terrible thing, but in a way less terrible than what we thought the situation might be when the invasion of Ukraine began. At least Zelensky has the standing to negotiate from a position of strength, because he and his people have been successful in taking the fight to an enemy that believes the gravest war crime is losing. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the assistant producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson is senior producer of The Gist. Michelle Pesca is the bureau chief of Boston and the outlying Marblehead area. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. For correct pronunciation of inquiries, do not refer to the preceding sentence. Oomperu depru duperu, and thanks for listening.